This Guardian Family podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit jumpsavings.com. Hi, this is Miranda Sawyer and you're listening to the Family Podcast from The Guardian. In this month's show, oldest, youngest or in the middle, does where you come in your family shape the person you become? My elder brother was bright (laughs) and um, technically speaking I was not bright and of course younger brother comes along and then he turns out to be bright as well. So I was sort of in the middle here and I think that had a fundamental effect on the family dynamic. Cringe alert, what's more embarrassing than a mum who won't let your boyfriend stay the night? A mum who will. The sly leaving of condoms in the bathroom cabinet as a, as a kind of, I'm alright with this. So the most awkward conversation we've had is, oh, so who's going to uh, restock the condoms in the bathroom cabinet <laughs> then, Nia? That is a conversation I don't wish to have. <laughs> and Oxford University Professor of Maths and Arsenal lover Marcus de Sotoy will be talking Halloween, trumpets and adoption in his family playlist. This is the family podcast from The Guardian. Joining me just in time for the election is Anne Perkins, The Guardian's political commentator, and just in time for a big family row, Dr Fiona Starr, clinical psychologist specialising in adolescents and families. Welcome to the podcast. You can say hello. Hello. (laughs) How are you? So I'm going to start with you, Fiona. Um, Do you find that your friends call up at inopportune moments saying, can you help me with my kids? Yeah, often and frequently. Often expected to be the expert. And often they expect my kids to be perfect because... What, they're not? And they're not. (laughs) They row with me and they have tantrums. But yes, I'm often called upon to give, you know, expert advice. And do you find in that situation that you can't really give kind of neutral advice because you know the kids? Absolutely. And you may hate them. (laughs) hopefully I don't hate them too much but yeah I mean it's very difficult to give neutral professional advice and then they get frustrated with me because I say go and see a psychologist (laughs) but not me yes absolutely (laughs) do you think there's such a thing as a kind of bad child no not at all no bad parent possibly improved (laughs) parenting might help some parents and would you would you kind of offer your friends advice in that area then I do try to but it's very it's a very difficult tightrope isn't it because you can just offend them so easily so and then I often back off and sit on the fence and then they get pissed off with me anyway so right okay so no no kid talk at all <laughs> and Anne, it's it's election season um nobody ever asked me for advice I can tell you. <laughs> maybe they could ask you how they should vote <laughs> not even that um it's obviously a busy time for you do you actually see your family around this time or in the days when um, when I was a political correspondent now I used not to see them at all and that was really hard and and I, and I hated it um uh, it's much easier now, and actually, they're eighteen and nineteen, the, the girls, and they've practically left home. So they don't um, want to see. You. <laughs> <laughs> they do report back that you know they're kind of getting all their friends wound up and they're all going to vote and so that's all quite cheering oh that's quite good so you're you're kind of responsible for the youth surge in vote all these kids kind of uh, it's you, you and nick clegg me me and <laughs> I, I has to be said that nick clegg probably you know may, may have reached a few more but i did watch that first debate with with my daughters and it was really noticeable although my older one did actually have a quite a few important text messages to send in the course of the debate nonetheless you know they did they did both the moment it was over say god that guy's you know he's okay he's 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 you know i can understand what he's saying we're going to move on to another part of the election (laughs) um every month we round up a guardian or observer colleague and set them a task to write a minute-long essay on a topic dear to their heart without repetition deviation or long division this week it's anne's turn so fire away anne well, my task was to consider the wives, the role of the wives. And if you know anything 
anything about this election campaign, you know this. The wives are out. Sam Cam and Sarah Brown at their husband's sides or a pace or two behind. And Miriam Gonzalez Durantes out but yet not out, in a very Lib Demish way, getting in the photo shoots without having to listen to the speeches. The strategy, you don't suppose they just woke up one morning and decided to see more of their husbands, do you? The strategy is to make their men look real. Also lucky, since they've landed such smart, good-looking ladies. But I just wonder, is this whole wives thing the biggest scam in the whole wobbly edifice of political campaign scams? For a start, we already know Sam and Sarah are very able and competent and independent people, Although Mrs Brown has always been curiously traditional in her approach to wifehood, giving up her career, adopting her husband's name, etc, etc. So there's just something implausible about their new role as consorts, sidekicks, subordinates, and above all, clothes horses. Picture candy. I mean, I wonder if they realise quite what exposing themselves to the merciless trivia of daily commentary really meant. Having your toes assessed, your dress labels peered at, your visits to your underwear shop reported... Your budget monitored. Steep if you get your bras from Ruby and Pella. <laughs> Did they know when they said yes that this is what it would come to? They had, after all, only to think of Michelle Obama or Carla Bruni Sarkozy. But perhaps they did, and those lovely smiles seduced them. But then there are the rest of us. How are we supposed to interpret the personalities of our would-be leaders when they feel the need to rest on the appeal of their lovely wives to support their claim to membership of the human race? I question the sanity of their strategists. First, it's one thing to see the odd snap of Sam or Sarah or Miriam and think, hmm, she looks nice. Quite another, to see their pictures every day. Every day! And every day they look immaculate. Their hair's perfect, their skin beautiful, and they're wearing another new outfit. This does not make me like them, and nor does it make me like them, because this isn't what most wives' lives are like. At least, not of those who work, and especially not wives who work and have kids. For a start, who has time, let alone money, to shop for themselves? Second, how many times in the past year have you left home for work, having got the kids off to school, got the laundry on, rung the plumber, walked the dog, thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind meeting the paparazzi this morning? <laughs> Never? <laughs> I thought not. But actually, more seriously, what about the kids? Of course, we don't want them paraded along with their mums and dads on the political catwalk, so I'm not complaining that we haven't seen them. But still, where are they? Who's looking after them? I worry that they'll switch on the TV one night and see their own personal god being roughed up. If I had turned on the telly when I was six and seen someone hurl an egg at my father, I'd have wept, if only for the person who did the throwing. And I worry, too, about how Sam and Sarah feel walking out on their children's lives. I know it's only for a month, but I'd have struggled to do it. Balancing caring between your spouse's needs and the children and while sticking up for oneself has always seemed to me the biggest and least discussed challenge in family life. And do these wives realise that if it all works and he wins, then they've set themselves up for another four years? Yeah, very true. It's not a, it's not a position I'd envy, I have to say. I think it's the most extraordinary thing to do. But, hey, you know, we need politics. We need politicians. But also, do you think that, that the men need their wives there? I mean, does it look slightly weird, say, for instance, that I mean, Nick Clegg's wife, Miriam, she doesn't kind of turn up as much as the others because she's got a proper job. <laughs> she can't leave it. But the, but the curious thing is, that, I mean, OK, Sarah Brown's decided to play you know, her role differently, but you know, Sam Cam has a, has a very proper job as well. But um, she seems to have just ditched but it. But she just seems campaign. to have ditched it. I, I think it's more about the husbands than it is about the wives in a way because, after all, you know, they could have said no and that, you know, they're... We feel they're quite able to say no. Um, And and you kind of wonder about 
the nature of our political discourse. If the, if the people who decide these things think that a man without a woman in a supporting role you know, it will somehow stand out and look odd and be kind well, of Well, that was the problem for Gordon Brown for many years, wasn't there? Because um, he was, the, I mean, because he didn't have a woman, actually, he was deemed to be gay for years, wasn't there? Until he kind of landed Sarah and married her in the proper way that you have to do as a politician. He was seen as somehow lacking. He could never become the leader of the Labour Party because he didn't have a decent woman on his arm. I have to say that I, th- I think, um, I think I just can't wait, you know, 30 years or whatever for the... For Sarah's autobiography, I just think it's such <laughs> an interesting story. <laughs> do you? Yeah. And what yeah. do you think each wife adds to each leader? So if we say with Gordon, you know, it perhaps offers a human side to, to Gordon seeing his wife there. Would you agree? Do you remember her first, the first time she came up on the platform at um, party conference? And she was just completely, she absolutely wowed everybody that Were time. Were you there? It, yeah. And it was, it was the most extraordinary performance because, you know, none of us had really kind of heard her speak, certainly not in public like that. And uh, it was, a, it was, you know, it was, it, was, it, it was terrific, especially for those who hadn't seen Michelle do something similar for um, Barack Obama. But you know, why was it so terrific before? then? Just the fact that she kind of stood up there and said, I love him, he's great. She did it so incredibly well, actually, which I suppose in a way tells us much more about her than it does about him. You know, she was so natural and kind of unstarry about it and she looked, you know, she just looked great. Not in the kind of Sam Cam yummy mummy way Mm. of looking great. She just looked just like she ought to have looked, you know. And yet and it's interesting that throughout the campaign... And she was She doesn't say anything, though. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But she was... she she was just the essence of normal, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I think you know at that particular moment it was very important for for Gordon for to appear Gordon. normal. <laughs> yes. Hillary Clinton is the oldest in her family. Ricky Gervais is in the middle. Charles Darwin was the baby boy. How much does your place in the family determine the story of your life? We spoke to three people who believe that sibling order has shaped their future. My name is Emma. I'm the eldest of four children. My youngest brother is 27 and I'm now 42 and I'm the mother of three children. I think I am the typical older child. I was probably always a bit more responsible, probably a bit more neurotic than the others, maybe even a bit more needy of my parents' attention. I was probably more of a good girl than either of my sisters. And um, and as we've got older, I would say that I definitely take on that more parenty role. I tend to be the one who will galvanise our whole family into getting together and sort of organise things. I think the role of the older, more responsible child is slightly foisted on you in that, for instance, in my family, we all very charmingly joke about the fact that I might be bossy and overbearing and the organiser, which, you know, on occasion can turn to be sort of less than pleasant. Um, But also I think it is something that does sort of slightly come naturally as well. Largely when we go back to the family home, I feel like we all revert to being about 10 to 12 years old and play out our roles in exactly that way. I think that being an eldest child has definitely impacted on the way that I'm mother and if I put my hands up I have to admit that yes I am quite controlling. I am reasonably regimented I suppose in the way that I'm mother and one of the excuses is that there are three children and only one of me but I think that's probably 
the way that I am naturally anyway. So if I have my siblings and my children sort of in the same room, I find I'm barking at them all in exactly the same way. I'm Tim Gray. I'm 61 years old. Um, I was brought up with a family of three boys, um, and I am the middle boy. The first thing was I came from a family that was uh, very academic. Uh, my father was a university teacher, a medieval historian. My mother was the daughter of an Oxford don. It was a very academic family. Um, I became aware of the word bright very, very early in life, and I realized that my elder brother was bright. <laughs> and um, technically speaking, I was not bright. Uh, I didn't perform in the same way that he had at school. I didn't learn to read at four years of age. And so I was fundamentally different. Um, and of course, younger brother comes along and then he turns out to be bright as well. So I was sort of in the middle here. And I think that had a fundamental effect on, on quite a lot of what went, went on in the family dynamic. I was always got this question mark over me, uh, you know, what do we do? The other two became began to be hothoused in the way that I wasn't uh, as the middle child. But what it actually meant, in effect, was that I parted ways with the family very much quicker than, um, than perhaps the others did because I inevitably had to move out and find different things to do. I went to sea and spent 15 years in the Merchant Navy uh, I got got up to a uh, foreign-going master's certificate. I was chief officer on uh, foreign-going merchant ships. Um, I had a completely different world, and the two worlds didn't mix at all. Didn't didn't. So there was uh, there was awkwardness between us because we didn't understand each other's worlds. You became used to this kind of um, dynamic. Uh, going on within the family, that there was no point making an opinion because it wouldn't be viewed as terribly important. But in fact, that has subtly changed in the last um, in the last ten years, at least, where um, it, it really, as we've grown older, the family has actually grown much, much more together again. But my God, it's taken <laughs> seventy years or sixty years. <laughs> Sarah and I'm 41. I'm the younger of two children and the mother of three children. In my own family as a child growing up I got away with murder. My brother was very sensible. He towed the line and I didn't. He's three years older than me and I managed to get most treats or privileges about six months after him. I never ever had to wait my full three years. And that's one thing I have tried to impose on my own children because I don't think it's fair on the oldest, but I certainly exploited that as a child, happily. I think growing up, I was cheekier, more attention-seeking, had a bit more gift of the gab than my brother, who completely towed the stereotypical line of being sensible, of working very hard at school, doing well, going to a very good university. He's now got a very, very well-paid, respectable job. And I do have a good job, but not nearly as well-paid as him. But I personally would consider I've had more fun along the way, having gone travelling and mucked about for a good few years. When my dad was ill a couple of years ago, my brother sort of formally took on the head of the household in a way... 
But he, he definitely took on the older child role in that way. My my 11-year-old son, Jonah, still does moan about being the oldest. And in a way, I can understand that from the age of four, he had a younger brother or sister. So even at the age of four, he was the oldest child. He was the biggest child. If they were all rolling around on the floor, he was the great big one. And that he can't escape from. I think I'm guilty of still babying my youngest sometimes. Sometimes I think I'll probably carry him to his own graduation or down the aisle or something. Fiona, there's some interesting stories there. Do you think that there's any evidence to back this up or is it just as, or is it like astrology? We just say, oh yes, they're a typical youngest child. They're a typical Gemini. What do you think? I think there is, you know, all the stuff we know anecdotally that Sarah was saying and the others were saying, there is psychological evidence to back it up. There's obviously a debate in the literature and it depends on the context and the culture of the family and all the rest of it. But there are quite substantial reports on birth order and how it affects personality development, intelligence, emotional relationships, all of it. So, yeah. So should we as parents be aware of it then? Because it seems to me that, especially in some of the stories that we just heard, that actually it was the parents reinforcing certain roles rather than the children. Absolutely. I think that does happen. I think as well, if you've got some insight into your own family of origin, I think you are aware of your birth order and how that impacted you. And sometimes parents go the other way to overcompensate. So they think, oh, I was a third child and thinking of myself and I was ignored, so, you know, I'm going to overdo it with a third child. Or sometimes they have, you know, they, they, they just do it unconsciously. They can't help it and just replicate the patterns that have, you know, gone into generations. And have you found that people carry these kind of so-called typical characteristics into adulthood or do they manage to shake it off when they leave home? Well, absolutely. I think it does impact on every aspect of your life, your birth order. Oh, dear. <laughs> But like Tim said, yeah. uh, I think as you get older, you know, you do learn to shake it. You know, as you have more experience in different groupings, different social mm. groupings, you learn to shake it. Yeah, but think? I have to say, he, it took him a long time. Sixty years, and now I think it's going to be all right. Yeah. That's quite slightly depressing. I think something happens also. But I'm just thinking of you know people I work with and my own experience. I think when your parents die, I think that shakes up the family a lot because I think then suddenly you know, the birth order, things get thrown out the window and suddenly, you know, it's sort of... It's a different maypole to dance around kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, Personally, I'll I'll admit, ladies, I'm an oldest child. Um, I have a younger brother and... uh, I found that there's some elements in that uh, in that discussion which I really uh, related to, which was the idea that my parents were much stricter with me than they were with my brother. But then I wondered if it was because I was a girl, so I was allowed. I had to come back at half past twelve, and then it seemed with my brother, who's two years younger than me, he's called Toby. He was allowed to stay out later, and they didn't kind of panic as much. What about you? (laughs) Confess all, Anne. Well, I'm the middle of five, but and I used to think that was immensely important. And but actually, I think. Although I recognise everything that everyone just said, I, re- I absolutely completely recognise that. Particularly, you know, we're all extremely grown up, and we're you know practically pensioners ourselves, and still put the five <laughs> of us together, and we are all <laughs> right back to being. What would you say girls. your role is then as a middle child? You always feel the the, the, the odd one out. I mean, it, I think it, it's lots of more. It's lots more than just being the middle, because you know my older sisters were twins, and then my younger. The next one down was a boy, and then there was another girl. So, you know, there are lots of reasons for, for, for thinking, for, for attributing birth order to the way I saw myself. Um, and I think actually probably the most significant of all of those things was that my mother had five children in, you know, six years. And, you know, that, that just makes things pretty 
competitive. I had a sense, when, maybe when I was younger, that it was a bit more difficult to be a rebel as an older child. Um, although I compensated when I was older and found myself, actually, I've never gone out with or, you know, fallen in love with any man who was an oldest child. They were all youngest. <laughs> so I think, that, I think that they're kind of maybe I was overcompensating in, in that way. And there are other people who marry the same yeah, you know, uh, uh, within yeah. that fa- within yeah. the family. Although I went the other way, just is I think, that common? I yeah, I think your 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 experience is I'm an freak. exception to the rule. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> just sort of anecdotally and uh, maybe clinically, it's been shown that actually, yeah, we do. We are attracted to people in the same birth. And what about you? Has that happened to you? It's Where do you come in your me? family? Yeah, I'm the third of three girls, and I married a, a younger child. Yeah, yeah. And how do you relate? Do you think that you, you two free rebels just <laughs> just waft Rub around along. being rebellious at all times? <laughs> no, I mean the thing with us is we're not very good. No, neither of us are very bossy, you know. So nothing ever gets done, and no decisions get made. <laughs> just sort of go along with it. See, whereas I'm, I rule yeah. the roost at home. That's yeah, I, I made the right decision. I just got a middle kid who went, oh, hey, all right, fine, whatever. I'll be over here playing with things. <laughs> Now, Marcus de Sotoy is the acceptable face of proper maths. He's Professor of Maths at Oxford University and recently took over from Richard Dawkins as Simonyi Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. He's also a mean tootler on the trumpet, as he explains in this month's Family Playlist. The first track I've chosen is The Dance Macabre by Saint-Saëns. This was a piece that um, my mum played once on Halloween, I remember, and it kind of sums up the, the sort of playfulness, I think, of my childhood. We used to do a lot of uh, kind of theatre shows with our teddies and things like this, and th- this track really brought alive Halloween for me and my sister. We had a cellar in the bottom of our house. Um, we, I grew up in Henley-on-Thames, and I remember us kitting it out with little spiders and ghosts and things like that, and then we put this piece of music on. My mum was really inventive with creating these kind of imaginary worlds for us, uh, doing a lot of reading with us, and I think that track for me sort of um, really picks up on that, the creativity that my mum gave me. Ever since that Halloween, I've always loved Halloween. It's my favourite festival of the whole year. And so um, my, my children, I've got three children, they, they've been brought up with Halloween as a really big festival. And so I did this amazing pumpkin head last year. I covered the whole of my head in orange and then drew in black um, this kind of Halloween grin. And it was really scary. We went around the neighbourhood here. People didn't recognise me. And I, I had children fleeing, just uh, screaming back up to their bedrooms. So that was really rewarding. The second track is the Hymn to St Edmundsbury, which is by Benjamin Britten. And uh, this really um, relates to the influence my grandparents, uh, in particular my grandfather Peter de Sotoy, had on me. Um, he was... I used to go up and see them in London quite often. Uh, uh, it was... Somehow staying the night with them was so exotic because the sounds of London in the morning, the buses, the, the fire engines, uh, I mean, it, was, it was just so exciting going up and staying with them. But they went and retired to Albra, which is where Benjamin Britten came from. And they actually knew Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears very well. And they took me up one um, uh, weekend to the Red House, which is where Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears lived. And the librarian discovered that I was a trumpeter and I started learning the trumpet about the same time as I got into maths, and he said, oh, you must see this piece of music. It's the Hymn to St Edmundsbury, and it's for three trumpets. And he showed me this piece of music, which I'd never seen before. It's quite a rare piece. I don't think many people know it. 
but I got a copy of it and I had two friends who played the trumpet at school. And so we went back and we played this piece. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece. It starts with just each person playing a solo line. So it's very spare, very light. And then after each of the three players have played their, their theme, they then play them all together. And you get this extraordinary cacophony of sound. I mean, it's just so exciting. The last track I've chosen is a piece by Tipex, which is an Israeli band. And this is really marking the beginning of my own family because I went out to Israel um, to do a postdoc at the Hebrew University and I met my wife there. And we, it was the beginning of the, our family, which now consists of uh, a son, uh, Tomer, who's uh, 14 year, years old. And we have two girls, twin girls, Ina and Magali, who are seven years old. And this piece of music was one that she was playing at the time when I met her in Jerusalem. Uh, we were actually flatmates together. And it, it really summed up that time. It was kind of changing time. I'd never been to Israel before. Um, and Tipex, it's a... It's a great band because it kind of mixes this kind of Western and rather uh, sort of Arabic sound. It's a really lovely mix. Actually, I mentioned it to my wife that I was going to choose it. And she said, oh, I actually didn't like that band at all. But it is the band that I remember during that period. So we live in London. It was very important for Shani that um, the family have a, a connection to Israel. And so um, we have actually brought our children up as Jewish. I'm not Jewish, but um, I think those kind of Jewish family values have been quite interesting for me because they're different from the family values that I had when I was a kid. Um, family is is very important part of uh, Jewish life. And, uh, and I quite like that. Interesting, my my two girls are adopted from Guatemala, so they wouldn't have naturally been Jewish. Actually, they would probably have had Catholicism uh, forced on them. But, I mean, they come from a Mayan uh, tribe. We lived there for seven months when we adopted the girls. Um, so we really got to know it very well. Our son, Tomer, went to school up in the mountains um, just outside Antigua. So he knows Guatemala very well. And we've got lots of friends back there. So, so we love going back. It's almost like we adopted the girls and another country and Marcus's new book, The Number Mysteries, An Odyssey Through Everyday Life, is due out in July. Now, to one of the most embarrassing social situations known to man, woman or teenager. It's Meet the Parents time. I'm Rivka, I'm 18 and... I get really annoyed by the sort of way in which boyfriends are treated in my household. It's sort of 
acceptable yet not acceptable at the same time. I can bring him home, but that's not a guarantee that my parents will be nice to him. I'm Nia and I'm 18 and I don't have a boyfriend, so luckily I don't have the problem. But you'd be surprised, even without a boyfriend, it can be just as awkward. My mum thinks she's totally liberal, up for anything, but if the subject would turn to bringing a boy home, it would be not in my house. And if they're all like not in my house, then whose house are you meant to go to? (laughs) My name's Jamie and I'm 17 years old. Well, the issue of having my girlfriends coming over to stay or coming around at all can be a point of friction with my parents. The meeting is usually the hardest one because your parents are trying to decide whether or not she's suitable and she's trying to let them know that she is suitable but at the same time decide whether or not she actually likes them too. Our ideas of what... Um, is acceptable are so different even between my parents my dad is so sort of um, stoic about it all almost um, while my mum reminisces about her being brought breakfast in bed by her parents so there are such different sort of conflicting experiences that it's difficult to arrive at a sort of happy medium between all of us. So the the real point of friction between me and my mum and I guess my mum and my girlfriend is the kind of having two main women in your life, which is is, is this kind of a he's mine aspect to it, which is can be quite troublesome. The the sly leaving of condoms in the bathroom cabinet as a as a kind of I'm all right with this, but <laughs> for some reason the condoms have been disappearing in our house. <laughs> no one knows where they've gone, but they've run out. So the most awkward conversation we've had is, oh, so who's going to uh, restock the condoms in the bathroom cabinet then, Nia? (laughs) Nia's mum enacts the liberal um, parenthood, which it becomes so liberal that you're actually conservative. Yeah, I think um, liberalism is now in parenting more of a fashion than a real attitude. It's a a kind of um, way that parents bond with each other and try to be open to a changing world, but in reality they want more than anything for their children to be in little bubbles. Oh dear, well we were all cringing, <laughs> especially at the condom moment I have to say, that one definitely made me cover my eyes. But there's no good outcome is there? You kind of, if you're, as a parent, you're either too strict and, and your, your kids will resent you or you're too liberal and they kind of start laughing at you and get really embarrassed. It's, it, it's really difficult, I mean, I've only just got to this point and, um, and, um, and it's very, very recently happened that I met the boyfriend. And, and how was that? Um, well, it was difficult. Um, <laughs> I just didn't know. I just kind of thought, how, you know, how am I supposed to play this? And, you know, but, you know, part of me was um, kind of saying, oh, he's not quite nice looking, isn't he? Yes, oh, he seems to be able to look me in the eye. And, you know, um, did he say over? Did he, well, he did, yes. Yeah. No, he'd, he'd, he'd come to stay because he's a you know, university man. Okay, so they're older, yeah. Um, and so you knew this, this was all... Uh, so it wasn't kind of last moment here or anything. And then, to make it even worse, I suddenly had to um, leave them alone for the night. Ah, and what happened? Well, we don't want to know, actually. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, but I just suddenly think, God, you know, am I really just putting far too much pressure on her, you know, just to, to leave her in this situation? But she was completely cool So what happened? You ran out of the house and left them the house? Yeah. <laughs> and so was that a deliberate decision? No, no. It just happened. It just completely unintended. It was rather, you know... I wanted to meet him. I said, yeah, for sure, hmm. I have to stay, you know, and then, then you I had there. to go away. What about, Fiona, do you think that there's a, a good way of doing, dealing with this or, or a bad way or 
Yeah. Middle oh, way. Tell me. You're you're tell you. I haven't got there yet with you're my You're the expert. Kid. You should know. <laughs> oh, no. All I know is just clinically, certainly a lot of us, a lot of psychologists are finding there's, there's a whole wave of liberal parenting, which I don't think is helping adolescents at all. You know, and how, in, how would you clinic. define liberal parenting then? Well, stuff like, you know, bringing your cup of, cup of tea in bed, like, for, you know. Well, the, the, well the fella or the, or the girl is there. Yeah. Absolutely. And other things that, you know, people have told me about are smoking dope with your children and going to Glastonbury with them. And, you know, the boundaries just seem to be a bit blurred. There. And I sound a bit old-fashioned. But, but is that just simply because it's much easier to to stay youthful as a parent these yeah, days? I, I mean, the, the, the kind of idea of, of middle yeah. youth is very strong, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. And I think that's part of it. But I still think as parents of adolescents, you know, it's your job to set the boundaries it you know, is because I think them to um, kick I'm, I'm much better friends with my kids than my yeah. parents ever were with me yes. um and and there is just a you just the, the whole kind of authority thing about parenting has is really diluted compared yes. with yes. but do kids not need some form of authority I mean you know it's all very well saying you know that you're not going to send them to their room because they you know dropped dropped something on the floor but surely they need some kind of boundaries Especially in this area, actually. <laughs> you know, I have to say, my child, my, my son is four and a half, and there will be no girlfriends or boyfriends <laughs> allowed within 50 yards of our flat. That's it. And he will love one woman, and it will be me. <laughs> Forever. I understand that. Yeah. I think it's different when you've got girls. Yeah. It's different yeah. for mothers and daughters, yeah. I think, perhaps. I'm not quite sure how their father kind of feels about this. He was, he was already away, in fact, when this happened. I've... I mean, we all we all found it slightly embarrassing, you know, if you walk in on them in a grope or something, you kind yeah. of, um, you know, everyone goes, okay. <laughs> lovely to see you, yes, you've been Yeah, but that's a very difficult thing for a parent, isn't it, to see their children in a, in a sexualised way. That, you know, that's their that's it precisely it. It's the, it's, the, it's the kids and, you know, your yes. kids... And how does that, beings, yeah. and, and, your, and the parents being sexual and beings. And how does that work kind of yeah. clinically? If you're kind of c- confronted with that as a, as, a, as a parent, what would you, as a professional, advise that they're advising to do? Well, I mean, it's about, I suppose it's about sort of letting go and that, of course, you know, the job of a parent is to let your children go and become sexual beings and that's what we all really do want for them. But. Yeah, just not in our house. Yes. <laughs> That's all for this month's family podcast. And for more interfamilial shenanigans, go to the family section in guardian.co.uk. My thanks to Anne Perkins, Dr. Fiona Starr, Marcus de Sotoy, and from me, Miranda Sawyer, and my producer, Sarah Peters. Goodbye. In today's instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the savings fund for children, we're looking at learning to plan for the future. What's this about, Alexander? Well, Becky, on the whole, parents are rubbish at this. They just live in the present, failing to realise that if my sports kit isn't washed by Wednesday morning, it's bound to be a crisis. The same with my sparkly top on Saturday evenings. How do you help them develop their skills? Help them understand that planning ahead is in their interest too. Take JUMP, the savings fund for children. Put a little money into it regularly over the years and then, later on, when there are big bills to pay for first cars, first flats, going to uni... We'll still be able to cash in our savings and spend it all on clothes. You'll never sell it to them like that, Bex.
Find out more about Jump, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As Jump is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust, PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Witten Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE. Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.